your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16, Proverbs chapter 16. Each week we provide an outline so you can follow along with the message. Those were available as you came into the auditorium. Those watching on live stream, there's an outline button below or next to your media player for that. On Tuesday, we're going to email a letter from our leadership team to all who are on our list Reminding that we're looking to have everyone who can be back in person at church by the end of this coming month. It's pretty much the same note that we sent two months ago, but with some logistical details added. I know a number of you are wondering when the masks and distancing guidelines will change, and so that will be in that letter that goes out in two days. If you want to receive that, you're not on our email list then do as Pastor Larry mentioned, uh, text CBC Connect to 97,000. We're sending that letter because we are just about at the finish line, brothers and sisters. And I want to say uh, that you all have been great in all of this, and I want to thank you. Some have thought that our leadership team has gotten lots of opposition over the last year because you've said things from time to time like, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. (laughs) I know everybody has an opinion. I'm sure you've heard all of them. Well, if everyone does have a different opinion from what we've done, I've not really heard it, or at least not very much at all. I have received a number of encouraging notes and comments over this past year, so I again thank you. Now, sure. There have been some, really less than a handful that I know of, who might take to social media and voice their opinions. I know that there has been some back and forth in that forum, and some become, let's say, exuberant. Social media can give the, the false impression that something is widespread when it's not. While I'm sure there are more in our church who would do things differently over this last year than our leadership has chosen to do, their maturity and their mission mindset has moved them to cooperate with what we've done, and again, that is much appreciated. That kind of approach from the vast, vast majority of our congregation has made leading during this time a joy and not a burden. And I'm so glad I can say that. Because the potentially toxic brew of politics and pandemic this past year could have easily created real and widespread problems. Instead, what they revealed was, rather than a problem, I prefer to think of it as a challenge, which for the most part we overcame, but which I am quite certain, though, is going to show up again. While the pandemic was literally a -a once-in-a-century occurrence, What accompanied it and the political season was a pandemic of another type, a pandemic of falsehood. We can't control whether and when another virus comes along, but we can control whether the viral spread of falsehood and vitriol rears its head among us. And make no mistake, there will be opportunity for it to reappear. And very soon, because the political and culture wars and the media that feeds them never stop in our 24-hour news cycle today. Now, thankfully, our study in the book of Proverbs offers us a chance to reflect on this misinformation virus 
and to hopefully inoculate ourselves against its next wave. That's what we're going to attempt to do this morning. So those of you who are guests, whether here in person or online, really glad that you're with us. You're welcome anytime. Today is going to be a little bit more of a format of kind of a family chat in order to prepare us for uh, the future as we move out of this stage that we have been in. But please, come back next week and every week. Let's bow now and ask God to help us. Father, thank you that we're here. As we said to you earlier in our service, we don't deserve to be here. So thank you for your mercy that allows us to be here. Thank you for creating in us a desire to be here. And Lord, we look forward to now, over these next weeks, gathering as an entire church, something we have not been able to do for over a year now. Thank you for those who have been able to return, for those who are going to return, and we look forward to what you're going to do in and through us in the months and years ahead. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we are in the second major division of the book of Proverbs that contains the short, memorable wisdom sayings, what we normally refer to as just Proverbs, and these are on various topics. Last week, we saw some of the Proverbs on the use of our God-given communication skills. Today, we want to continue looking at what this book says about what we communicate. We're going to see that it insists that what we say, in the words of the title of today's message at the top of your outline, be nothing but the truth. And so I say, first of all, in the outline, the wise separate truth from error. Verse 21 of Proverbs 16, verse 21 The wise in heart are called discerning. Note that word, discerning. The late biblical counselor, Jay Adams, wrote a book titled A Call to Discernment. We have that book in our resource center. In which he noted that the Hebrew word for discern is used in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, 247 times. And it refers to a process by which one comes to know or understand God's thoughts and ways through separating those things that differ. Notice that word separating. And then the Greek word translated discern in the New Testament has a similar idea. That through the use of, notice again, separating discrimination, a person makes judgments, evaluations, decisions. The key to discernment in both the Old and New Testaments is separating, including separating truth from error. And verse 21 says, it's the wise who do this. Not everyone who opens his mouth to spout off, not everyone who clicks away on his keyboard, the wise do this. And they learn the skill of discernment over time and by practice. The Bible says this, solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil. The Apostle Paul said to the saints at the church in the city of Philippi, this, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. It means that not everyone is discerning Because it's something that requires practice and growth over time. God's Word has a good bit to say about separating truth from error. 
And it often uses the courtroom setting to make the point. For example, a truthful witness saves lives, but a false witness is deceitful. One standard, friends, that we should use in testing the claim someone makes is whether they could prove those in court if given the chance. In the last few months, we've had fantastic claims made in front of microphones and cameras, but when those same people got to court, they refused to make the same claims there. And one even said to the court, quote, reasonable people would not accept such statements as fact. The stuff I've been saying, said this person, reasonable people would not accept as fact when they got in court. Well, even if that attorney is unwilling to subject her claims to court scrutiny, we should try to limit our claims on whatever matter. To those that we could support in court, at least theoretically, since the stuff that we say to one another in person or by text or on social media are not likely to be tried in court, hopefully, but we should think of only making claims that could withstand serious scrutiny. This courtroom setting is applied to the church in the New Testament. Jesus said this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So Jesus says, you see somebody, they sin because you love them, you go to them. If they receive that, if they correct that, it's over. But then he says this, but if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. The quotation from Jesus there itself contains a quotation. Jesus quotes something, and I don't know if you can see it in the middle of that verse, but every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's in quotes. And that's because Jesus is quoting from the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, where the rules for witness testimony are given. In fact, it comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy says this, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It goes on to say that if someone gives false testimony as a witness, guess what happens? They're killed. God takes this issue of truth claims extremely seriously, and the wise separate truth from error, which means we hold ourselves to a very high standard when we make claims. And I say in your outline as well, the wise then enjoy a favorable reputation. If we are discerning, if we do distinguish, if we do separate truth from error, and we're very careful about that, the result, verse 21 tells us, is they enjoy this favorable reputation. Verse 21 again, the wise in heart are called discerning. They're called discerning by other people, not themselves. That is, other people observe the way you handle information and how careful you are in the declarations you make, and you gain a reputation as a discerning person, which is a characteristic of wisdom. And so it says it's the wise in heart who are known by others as discerning. Now remember this, friends. 
Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's the application of what we know. One of the foundational things we know is that we are on mission. We're on mission even during a pandemic or even during an election. So it matters how we react to those things that are happening around us. The Bible says this. Be wise. Apply what you know. Be wise. In the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. One commentator says, to be wise in the way you act toward outsiders is to show practical Christian wisdom in dealing with secular society. These words imply that believers are to be cautious and tactful so as to avoid needlessly alienating their unbelieving neighbors. The verb in the statement, make the most of every opportunity, it's a market term that meant to buy out, to purchase completely. So Christians, as an expression of practical wisdom, must buy up and make the most of every opportunity for witnessing to our faith. Don't waste the opportunity, it's saying. And the next verse goes on to say, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is like the second line in our verse back in Proverbs 16, 21. That second line says, gracious words promote instruction. The word translated opportunity in Colossians 4, 5 is the Greek word kairos. It essentially denotes a point of time and sometimes used for significant time, God's time or opportunity. So, dear church, the challenges of this last year were a God-given, golden opportunity. And many acquitted themselves very well. For others, it revealed patterns and practices that need evaluation and modification for the future so that we can all be reliable witnesses, reliable testimonies to what we believe. Now, lest you think that I'm the only pastor who's concerned about this, <laughs> I want to read something that my friend, Pastor Dave Dorn, Dorn, who many of you know, said a few months ago. Dave said, the mission of Jesus Christ to build His church is the most important thing happening in this world. And it should be the highest concern of every follower of Jesus Christ. All other responsibilities must be lined up properly with this one. Every word and deed should be measured against its effect on our mission. We must remember the three facets of our witness for Christ, the content of our message, our contact with the mission field, and our credibility as the Lord's messengers. Specifically, we must be careful not to let the current craziness in our culture lure us into its mess. My fear, he says, frankly, is that too many professing believers and congregations are carelessly damaging their witness by their reactions to the shifting cultural tide. We hurt our credibility as truth-tellers if we share stories, posts, and links that are false or deceptive. 
The biblical principle regarding two or three witnesses may be a helpful tool here. Do you have two or three independent, reliable, I'll talk about reliable sources in a bit, that confirm this? If not, perhaps you should research it further or not pass it along. When it comes to your credibility, better safe than sorry, right, he says? We damage our contact with the mission field when we cause needless offense through our speech and actions. The gospel carries its own offense, and we should never back down from it, never. A lot, though, of the rude, obnoxious, in-your-face stuff that happens on social media has nothing to do with the gospel. It's just rude and obnoxious. The best defense of a right position is one done graciously, and it leaves the door open to talk about the most important topic, the good news that God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. Putting someone in his or her place at the cost of your witness may feel good, but it's eternally foolish. The way some professing believers are going at each other online about pandemics and politics is hard to square with John 13, 35. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And we create distortion in the content of our message when we mix our political, national, and medical takes. The Bible speaks to a lot of the issues we are facing, but we need to be very careful not to preach specific applications in these areas as being the gospel itself. Let's not confuse becoming a Christian with becoming American or joining our cause. He says, lastly, 2020 has been a testing time for God's people in many ways. Pressure squeezes out what's inside. Some of that has been glorious evidence of God's grace among His people. I've been blessed to see God at work in our congregation, and I would add, I've been blessed to see the same in ours. Much of what I see in here generally, though, he says, is evidence that the American church is not healthy. It truly calls for repentance and should prompt prayer for revival. Let's not trade our witness so easily. The wise separate truth from error. And when they do that, they enjoy a favorable reputation. And I say, the wise humbly seek counsel. Notice in verse 21, it's the wise in heart who do this. Two verses down, verse 23. The hearts of the wise make their mouths prudent and their lips promote instruction. So once again, like we've seen the last few weeks from, for example, Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for from it flows everything else. The chapter just before this one says this, the discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of the fool feeds on folly. So, what kind of hearts do we have? Are our mouths controlled by a humble heart? A humble heart that says, I need to seek counsel. Proverbs says this, where there is strife, there is pride, the opposite of humility. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. A lack of humility says, I don't need to listen to anyone. I just go at it and spout off. 
But Proverbs says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, many counselors, they succeed. That's why, friends, your church is structured as it is with a leadership team of eight people who deliberate about issues. This church is not run by a single person, and that's a very good thing. But the prideful person just lets it fly because in their arrogance, they don't need counsel. And so Proverbs says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. If your favorite story in the Bible is you've gotten riled up by watching your news sources day in and day in, and hour in and hour out, as you've gotten riled up, if your favorite story about Jesus in the Bible is him overturning the tables in the temple, I've actually heard people say this. That's what we need is some overturning of the tables. And you think that's what we should be doing with the culture war then you need to consider that first, that's just one episode. <laughs> but also, it was against hypocritical religious people who rejected him. Not against the lost people he came to seek and to save. Friends, we are not at war with the people that we are called to reach. And so the wise humbly seek counsel, but they recognize that none is perfect. So can we just stipulate that no human advisor or counselor is infallible? We know that, so any of them and us will make mistakes and be wrong. So it does no good to see if you can find one thing that an expert source said or did wrong and then nullify 40 years of dedicated work in their field. I mean, really, does it? Is that fair to that person? Is it wise on your part? Someone who does that is looking for a way to discredit because the expert's not saying what they want to hear. Listen, the government bureaucracy has certainly made mistakes during this year that have mystified you and me, perhaps especially at the beginning of this whole thing, with unforced errors like designating things essential and non-essential. Who, who came up with that? So that now people could say, oh, church is not essential. Other stuff's essential, but the church, who came up with that terminology? Dumb. But if you demand perfection, you're being unreasonable. If you had the opportunity to see some of the Chauvin George Floyd murder trial, you saw expert medical witnesses testify. And over and over again, they testified, and this is a quote, to a degree of professional medical certainty. That is, as much as is possible to know, my expert testimony is this, but no one expects any expert to be infallible. To a degree of professional medical certainty. So friends, there's no need to discredit science and medicine. These are gifts from God. 53 weeks ago, I wrote on the Church Matters blog an article that asked, is Jesus your vaccine? 53 weeks ago. 
I did that all the way back then because already the misinformation machine was in high gear and as I was afraid, it would hurt our gospel credibility. And I said so in that article. That's been my concern all along and really for the last five years or so. In that article and in another just a few weeks ago, I made the distinction between origin science and operation science. Because I've come to realize that one reason that some Christians do not trust science and medicine is because we know that what it teaches about the origin of the universe is in direct conflict with what the Bible says on that topic. But we need to remember this, friends. That origin science is a special category of science and not normally what we mean by the term. When we speak of science, we normally are speaking of what's sometimes called the called operation science, that adheres to the scientific method. You guys remember the scientific method? It says that a phenomenon can be observed, tested, repeated, and it can be confirmed or falsified. That's operation science. That's what we normally think of as science. Origin science, on the other hand, is sometimes called historical science or forensic science because it looks back rather than observing something that takes place in the present. Origin science is indeed legitimate inquiry, but it's simply not the same as operation science because it fails the very first requirement of the scientific method, namely, that a process be observable. By definition, no human was around to observe the first moment of the universe. Many of the same scientists today that are very bad at origin science are really, really good at operation science. And that's what medicine is. The wise seek counsel knowing that none is perfect, but still some are better than others. When this pandemic started in earnest in March of last year, one of the first markers our leadership team laid down was what sources of information we would use. We did it right away because, as I said earlier, the misinformation campaign started very early. I received emails and comments that folks were picking up on the internet. We said in our very first letter to the congregation last March, quote, we offer these thoughts to prepare for the future and encourage best practices in the present. Obtain the facts from the medical professionals who are trained to provide it. Any announcements we make will be based on the most current information from neutral sources with medical expertise, such as the Centers for Disease Control. When we wrote that, we knew that none of them are perfect. But we did it because, one, that's what they do, and two, practically, we needed a central source of information. Otherwise, we would be caught in the morass of information chaos. So I encourage you, friends, to be willing to go with experts in their field. Those who are experts in a particular area rather than someone who's a generalist. But I know the very idea of the expert has fallen on hard times. As soon as I say that, some of you are going, expert. Yeah, well, who says they're an expert? Right? It's fallen on hard times, this concept of experts, so much so that three years ago, Tom Nichols, an arms control and foreign policy expert, wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. In it, he says this, 
I have been astonished at the way people who did not have the first clue about arms control and foreign policy would confidently direct me on how best to make peace between Moscow and Washington. I started hearing the same stories from doctors and from lawyers and from teachers and as it turns out, from many other professionals whose advice is usually not contradicted easily. These stories astonished me. They were not about patients or clients asking sensible questions, but about those same patients and clients actively telling professionals why their advice was wrong. In every case, the idea that the expert knew what he or she was doing was dismissed almost out of hand. What I find so striking today is not that people dismiss expertise, but that they do so with such frequency on so many issues and with such, he says, anger. Quoting him, there's a self-righteousness and fury to this new rejection of expertise that suggests, at least to me, that this isn't just mistrust or questioning or the pursuit of alternatives, it's narcissism. And this makes it all the harder for experts to push back and to insist that people come to their senses. No matter what the subject, the argument always goes down the drain of an enraged ego and ends with minds unchanged, sometimes with professional relationships, even friendships damaged. Instead of arguing, experts today are supposed to accept such disagreements as, at worst, an honest difference of opinion. We're supposed to agree to disagree, a phrase now used indiscriminately as little more than a conversational fire extinguisher. And if we insist that not everything is a matter of opinion, that some things are right and others are wrong, well, then we're just being jerks, apparently. And after pointing out, as he does, that experts, of course, do not always get it right, he says, we do not have a healthy skepticism about experts. Instead, we actively resent them, with many people assuming that experts are wrong simply by virtue of being experts. We hiss at the, quote, eggheads, a pejorative coming back into vogue while instructing our doctors about which medications we need or while, or while insisting to teachers our children's answers on a test are right, even if they're wrong. Not only is everyone as smart as everyone else, we all think we're the smartest people ever. On January 4th of this year, Dr. Mark Snowberger, who teaches for us every semester in our community institute, from Detroit Baptist Seminary. He wrote earlier this year on the seminary blog what he called the, quote, irrational distrust that's increasingly plaguing religious and political conservatives. He suggested that we ask of our theories about, say, mask mandates, social distancing, and vaccines. Ask this, why would all these people be doing what I've convinced myself they're doing? Specifically, for what logical reason would the whole medical community enter into league with the political establishment to sabotage the freedoms, economic stability, and health of the American people generally and Christians specifically? And if the only answer, this is him, that I can muster is it's a conspiracy that I'll eventually be able to prove, then I probably need to do some rethinking or at a very minimum collect some more evidence. In the meantime, he says, maybe, just maybe. I should give some credence to the possibility that they really do have my best interests in view. Now, the reason I keep quoting a bunch of other people is so that you can send your cards and letters to them. <laughs> but really, to let you know, I'm not alone in this concern. 
We are people who love science, operation science. And we should thank the Lord for the fruit that it's produced. I want to give you, friends, five recommendations. These are not in your outline. We'll put them on the screen. You can write them down if you care to. But five suggestions. And these are, you see on the screen, suggestions to maintain gospel credibility. Now, before I give the suggestions themselves, I want to break down what that line says. Because it's really important that you understand why I'm doing this. One, these are suggestions. You don't have to do what I'm saying. They're suggestions for credibility. Credibility is what I care about. I mean, I care about who won the election. I'll care about who wins the next election. But I'll tell you what I care most about is the credibility of God's people in our mission through it all. That's what I've cared about the whole time, the whole last five years. Credibility comes from the Latin credo, believe, believability. If we don't have credibility, how are we going to say incredible things and then go to people and say, and by the way, let me tell you about Jesus rising from the dead. These are suggestions. You don't have to do them. They're about credibility. And they're really about gospel credibility, which is the heart of our mission. I have no medical expertise. I claim none. I never have. But I do have a responsibility for and a deep commitment to our gospel mission. And the things that I've written and said over the last five years on cultural and political topics are all for one purpose, to help us maintain gospel credibility. When I see threats to that, I have a responsibility to address them. Several years ago, we had a Q&A at the end of a series I had done on what the Bible teaches about ethical issues like homosexuality, abortion, capital punishment, race, and others. The very last question on that Q&A at the end of that dire series was something like this. Should we mobilize to have political impact in Lansing or Washington on these matters? And I said something like, I don't think we have credibility given our current political alliances. And I use that very word, credibility, because that's always been my concern about the candidate so many have promoted because it hurts, I believe, our credibility. Now, I have not done a good job of explaining that. That credibility is my motivation, not a personal animus toward a politician and now it's not because I think some medical knowledge, that I have some medical knowledge other people do not. I don't. I offer these as suggestions for our people and for our church as a whole to maintain the credibility that's necessary to be effective in our gospel mission. So, first, I suggest you consult genuine experts. Well, what's a genuine expert? I don't, care. I don't even think there are experts, let alone genuine experts. Well, what I mean by a genuine expert is somebody who does that very thing as their profession. Not a generalist, but they do that thing that you have a question about. Now, if you're somebody who says, I don't trust any of them, they're all a bunch of liars. None of them know anything. Think about that. None of them know anything. Is that using our words in a Proverbs wisdom kind of way? 
And if the person you're getting your information from is someone outside the area that's under consideration, if their expertise is not in that, then I recommend you be wary. The head of the coronavirus task force for the last several months of last year was a radiologist who appeared on Fox News and then landed this gig. For me, that's not my guy. And when somebody forwards something to you from some doctor, look into then who they are. If there's somebody who's an anti-vaccine person, which people are, and, they, and that's up to them and you. But if they are, you'll just know where they're coming from. If they're a conspiracy theorist, you'll know where they're coming from. I've been sent information like this from several people, including pastor friends outside our church, and at least those that I've been sent have always fit into those kind of categories. Always. Second, consult genuine experts and accept the burden of proof. If you're going to take on the experts, then you're claiming your own expertise to debunk them. So you should accept the burden to prove them wrong. If you cannot prove, don't promote your alternative. Oh, but Pastor Ken, you've got to understand, I'm nobody's tool, I'm nobody's sheeple. I do my own research. Why should I depend on the word of someone else? We need to remember this, friends. We always have to depend on the expertise of someone else. Did you know that? You go, no, not me. Yeah, yep, you. You got a Bible with you? You got, you got an app, a Bible app on your phone? The content of this book, the content of what's on that, that Bible app, let me ask you this, how do you know it's accurate? You ever looked at an original manuscript? I know you haven't because the original manuscripts don't exist. Have you ever physically looked at a copy of the original? If you have, as I have, you've seen only a few. And for those of you that have looked at a copy of the original and only a few, can you read it in Hebrew and Greek? How do you know your Bible's accurate? You depend on experts. We happen to have a bona fide expert on our pastoral staff and Dr. Combs. Many of you have had the chance to take his How We Got Our Bible class. It's fascinating. But how many churches have that? And yet people in those churches accept their Bibles all the while saying, I don't need no stinking experts. And since even your Bible depends on the expertise of others, it's yet another area rife with conspiracies. The Bible, rife with conspiracies. Did you know that there's a whole King James-only conspiracy-like cult out there? Do you, some of you are familiar with that? And the reason is, is because you get people who exploit the fact that experts are involved. And so then they question, what are those experts up to? What are they not telling us? What are they not putting in the Bible that should have been in there? Listen, when you, when you trust experts in their field, you do a wise thing. But ultimately, you're trusting God. Saying, I'm uneasy about a particular issue, I'm uneasy about the vaccine and what's in it and whether I should take it, that's a completely different thing 
than going out there and trying to prove to everybody that you have expertise that you don't have. Feel free to say, I'm uneasy. But it's quite another thing to try to prove a position you're not qualified to prove. You have the perfect right to say and pursue, I'm uneasy. So consult genuine experts, accept the burden of proof, simplify the complex. I'll explain what I mean in a minute, but I saw a tweet where a pastor said this, probably one of the best life skills to develop is the ability to quickly identify and completely ignore utter nonsense. <laughs> a great thing to be able to do. How do you do that? This is what I do. Somebody sends me some medical thing that's above my pay grade, by the way, because I'm not a medical person, right? And they're using a bunch of medical terminology. I could take a lot of time and try to look up all the terminology and all that, and then maybe try to figure it out. Probably not. So I don't. I simplify it. I look at what underlies the barrage of data. And I ask myself things like, what conspiracy do I have to believe in order for this to be true? I mean, let's take it back to the, the Bible again. Lots of people who say they're the experts are pulling one over on you with the Bible. I mean, you could go and look into that. You can learn Greek and Hebrew. You can try to become like Dr. Combs. Have at it. Or you could simply ask yourself, how many people would have to be involved in that conspiracy? I mean, over centuries, how many people would have to be involved in that? And then use this rule, the more people you have involved in your conspiracy, the less likely it's really a conspiracy. Now remember this, nobody ever self-identifies as a conspiracy theorist. Nobody, ever. In fact, they'll also say, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And when somebody says that, I'll predict for you what follows. A conspiracy theory. But hey, can you prove that there's not a plot by Bill Gates and the Chinese Communist Party and Dr. Fauci and Big Pharma and the CDC to make the tr country compliant for an eventual martial law or inject us with the RFID devices or whatever the plot is? Can you prove that's not happening? No, I can't prove it's not happening. You see, guys, that's not the way proof works. I don't have to prove anyone's negative. I don't have to prove something's not happening. The person making the assertion has to supply the proof. The more people involved in the alleged conspiracy, I suggest the more unlikely it is. I choose the experts in the field, and I've seen no good reason not to. Whatever you do is up to you. I'm simply suggesting that you seriously consider what the experts say and think twice or three times about any conspiracy. Fourthly, apply the two-day rule. What that means is this, don't forward or otherwise pass on anything for at least two days. Just give it at least two days to see if it can withstand just two news cycles and see if it still survives. We had two examples of this this past week. Biden is going to limit you to one hamburger a month. Biden has no such proposal. It didn't survive for 24 hours, but I saw pastors retweeting it. 
Kamala Harris's book was being distributed in mass to migrant children at the border. Turns out not to be true. Now, I mention those errors from right-wing media because that's what so many of you listen to. It's not because left-wing media does not make mistakes or even produce intentional fabrications. 60 Minutes and the whole Ron DeSantis thing from a few weeks ago. They do. But you don't imbibe left-wing media, so why should I spend time warning you about stuff you don't do? Apply the two-day rule. Last, go to primary sources instead of somebody's recycling of the primary sources. You say, I don't have time for that. Good. It means you have a life. But here's what it also means. Then you don't have to opine on it. You don't have to talk about everything. You don't have to vent your spleen about everything. Proverbs says, fools find no pleasure in understanding, but delight in airing their own opinions. Put that verse on your keyboard. We need to be so very careful when it comes to speculating, accusing, and debating things we actually know little about. Friends, having no opinion is infinitely better than publishing a false claim. The wise separate truth from error. They enjoy a favorable reputation. They humbly seek counsel. Lastly, the wise speak only truth. The Bible says we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. But unfortunately, instead of taking thoughts captive, we're allowing our minds to be captured. But all the while, Proverbs says, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The wise say nothing that does not conform to the character of God, including anything potentially false. And it's never been easier to broadcast them far and wide, spoken words, written words, recorded words, even live-streamed words. But the easier it is to share, the more care we ought to take. Proverbs says, do you see someone who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for them. You see, friends, truth matters because we're representing the God of truth. Our testimony, our claims must be truthful. And if we don't know it's true, don't act as though we do. We cannot gorge on falsehoods all week and then celebrate the God of truth on Sunday. Remember individually and then collectively as a church, we're representing the Lord. Let's do it well by doing it carefully. In August, when we restart our second hour, during that second hour, I plan to take a few weeks for a short series called The Wisdom Pyramid, offering suggestions for how to consume information in a wise way. Now, the reason I did this today, and I'm going to do that in August, is because the same political and medical misinformation machine that's bedeviled us the last several years is going to continue to do so, and we've got to be ready to withstand it. Almost done. Friends, it's a matter of what kind of people and church we want to be. For my part, I believe for the sake of our gospel credibility, we must be a people that believes in and promotes the gift of Operation Science and thanks God for it. That we must be a people who recognize the gift that government is according to God's word and thank God for it. 
that we must be a people who rejects conspiracies, promotes truth, and so removes that unnecessary impediment to our mission. And when we engage in discourse with each other or on social media or in other venues in the public square, we do so with our mission foremost in our minds, more important than our candidate, than our argument, than our preference or our ego. And here's why. Our claims reflect our character. And in turn, that reflects on our Christ. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, again, we thank you for gathering us. Thank you for instructing us in your word, God of truth, about the need to be careful and truthful. Lord, we don't all agree. Our, Our limited minds can't put it all together. Certainly mine cannot. So help me and help us to have the humility to say so. And if we're not sure to keep it to ourselves, and if we decide on a different approach, then allow others to do as they believe right and not feel we have to force them. As a result of this, Lord, may we gain credibility, as your word says, that, that we will be called discerning by those who observe our demeanor and our thoughtful processes. As a result of that, may we gain a hearing for what's most important, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.